Welcome to a special edition of the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's episode, I'll be joined by two very special guests, Benjamin Gardner and Bill Conger, and we're going to talk all about The Shining, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined this morning by a couple of special guests. First, we have Benjamin Gardner. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, Dave. That's great to have you on. And our other guest today is Bill Conger. How are you today, sir? I'm great, Dave. And it's a very excellent and exciting day for Studio Break. We're doing a highlight episode talking about, well, The Shining and a number of other things, uh, not necessarily related to horror, but... You know, we're interested in the overarching conversation this time of year as the weather changes. And obviously there's a big uh, uh, storm brewing, which is ironic considering that, well, there's a storm coming in the movie The Shining. So I'm sure that that'll come up. But I would like to start just to talk a little bit about the introduction. And I I was speaking a little bit earlier with you guys about how much I enjoy it. Just the the height, especially of the introduction of the movie where you kind of see this really tiny speck of a car kind of traveling through all these different landscapes. The the music is very kind of slow and plodding. And for me, one of the things that I really like about it is I kind of get the, the idea or a feeling like this is actually, and this is just my take, but it's almost like the ending to me. It seems like it's like the ending of this long story. And obviously having seen the movie and know how it ends, you know, you, you can think about um, the way that that story is resolved. But I think especially how, you know, Jack's been on the wagon for a while, and it seems like he's got everything back in order. Um, and I don't know why. I just, I like when I th- when I when I see that intro, and I think about the the slow buildup of the whole story and everything. I just almost see like it's like he's driving towards his fate. Um, but I don't know. Uh, so let's let's start and, and and think about that. I mean, what do you guys think about the introduction? And I'll I'll ask you, uh, Ben, to just talk a little bit about it first. If you've got any thoughts or ideas or some other tangent based off of that. I think uh, one of the sort of pillar points or most important points that to me is that because the film starts out like that, um, the, the the film starts out to a certain extent with some amount of resolution among the family, but the film starts out with the sort of ominous overtones and, and the, I mean, in that scene, it's a helicopter, but then I think throughout the movie, it's it was a steady cam that was just recently invented um, I think it's both it, it's both the ominousness of it, but then also uh, it just blows my mind how Kubrick and, and the videographers and the cinematographers were able to make us feel like sort of um, like we were following the action, but not in a human body. So we were following the humans in the film, um, but sort of in this detached way throughout the entire film, which is really bizarre. And I don't know how he decided to do that. I don't know what sort of made him think like that. But um, it's that detachment from what's going on. It's like always being a couple uh, shoulder lengths behind whatever the action's happening. Or in the case of the intro, I guess, like you're saying, it's it's a little bit further and you're kind of gradually zooming in. Um, being behind and sort of being detached from what's going on is part of what makes that film so disturbing in some ways. Yeah, uh, can I interject? Yes, um, yes. Uh, 
I totally agree. And, and the, I think the, the mastery of, of Kubrick um, begins with the film actually kind of setting a tone for what the film will become, which um, I kind of agree with, with Ben that the, the film is very Whitman-esque and that it, it actually is a body of its own. It really is kind of a, this kind of spirit, this human slash spirit um, entity to itself. But uh, the, the very first scene, uh, which I believe is uh, a lake um, or the sky reflected off of a lake with mountains kind of around, is the first use, I guess, of, of like a mirroring hmm. that, that uh, you know, goes through the entire film, this kind of, uh, this kind of great um, um, duality that, that uh, Kubrick is really hung up on throughout. Definitely. Yeah, and I think you know, and I, and again, maybe this is the the part where we just jump all over the place because you know, when you're talking about that idea of duality, is I immediately think of the uh, the shot where he's um, looking down at the maze, mm-hmm. and his wife and and son are walking through the maze, and then it kind of dissolves into that scene where he goes from where it goes from looking at the model, and it just kind of slowly creeps into this overhead shot. Right. And so I, th- I right. really like that. And, and again, it really reminds me of that idea of those, those kind of um, those relationships. And it also kind of talks to me a little bit about that idea of, of uh, keeping control or, or trying to maintain control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The maze also is, is just so um, I guess kind of awesome in, in its use in the movie because he's, um, kind of looking at it, but looking through it very much like he does um, a number of times in the film where he's kind of, I, I assume he's shining at that point. They don't, it, it's not really said that there are a number of times that it kind of appears that he himself is shining. Um, but that the maze actually becomes this kind of uh, surrogate for his mind, you know, the, the kind of order, the structure, which is just um, also chaos at the same time. Definitely. Sure. So one of the other big things, one of the other characters I would almost say is the, the sound in the movie or lack thereof, or sometimes obviously very strong and, and kind of intense kind of sounds. But, you know, you get a sense of that obviously throughout the, the, the movie. Um, but especially in the beginning, you kind of have that slow build up. But then one of the other things that I notice that happens a lot is there's a lot of silence. And I think that's one of the things that, that works really, really well in the movie in terms of trying to get you in the context of that. And, and again, we're going to be jumping all over the place, but one of the most obvious ones is, um, you know, when Danny's uh, riding around on his, on his, uh, his big wheel throughout the hotel. But even, even as we're kind of being led into the movie where Jack is coming in and, and greeted, you know, there's not really any music. He just kind of gets walked over to this office and, um, you know, it's very casual. And I think that's one of the things that the, the movie does really effectively. There's not, it really allows you to kind of feel like you're part of that experience that you're in this kind of perspective of the, of the character rather than it being like a, like having a backdrop of uh, music and, and maybe pulling you out of that. But what do, what do you, what do you think about those, some of those ideas about sounds, Ben? Um, I, I agree. And I even think there's, there's parts in the film, especially towards the beginning that are like slow. And I don't know if that's my sort of, contemporary uh, take on films and being used to, you know, like I think the average uh, still shot is like 0.08 of a second now or something like that. 
Um, but the, you know, when, when he's being interviewed for the job and when they first move in, there's, there's times when I'm like, come on, you got to speed this up a little bit, but, but I, I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely like sure that Kubrick did the right thing in making it slow because it's very deliberate and it sort of makes you feel uneasy even with, uh, what, what I would consider in some ways sort of natural conversation. But I, and I think, uh, I think the, the score is just incredible. I, I think it's pretty interesting that Kubrick by and large, um, chose to use existing music. He didn't have, I mean, some of the, some of the music was, was made for the film, uh, especially the sort of more electronic stuff, but there's a lot of sort of classical, uh, scores that were already existent that he added to the film. Uh, and I think that's pretty interesting. And I, and I think it's like Hitchcockian to me. I mean, that's kind of, uh, you know, dumbing it down a little bit, I think, but just, it's the only thing that I can kind of equate it to in film that I've seen before is how, how, uh, acutely, like how greatly Kubrick uses the, the music in the film. Oh, I, I totally agree. The, the, the Penderecki stuff is, is I think, um, beyond compare. There's, I don't think there's anything in, in, in music or, or sound work that, that rivals, uh, what he did for the film. Um, I also love the, I have to say, I, I, I love the parallels that, uh, that Kubrick keeps putting throughout the film, even within the audio, which was like, uh, the one that comes to me is, uh, when, when Jack is throwing the ball against the wall, um, it, I believe that's the same sound as the, or very close, the same sound as the ax when the ax hits the, the door. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, he kind of keeps, um, revisiting the same sounds, but they take on different contexts and, and get more and more, um, kind of foreboding and, 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 um, um, I guess foretelling, um, as, as the film goes on. And I think a lot of the sounds are, are actually repeated. You know, we talked also about like the, the hotel and the way that that's isolated and, you know, obviously, when you finally arrive at the end of this road, um, um, you're kind of set up with that. So, I mean, w- what are your thoughts about just the, I guess, the hotel in general as, um, I don't know, maybe as its locale um, or, you know, its scope? I mean, again, obviously, it's very massive. It's on the side of this, you know, massive mountain in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. Um, but w- what are your thoughts about that idea? Just the, just the idea of the hotel also as being, you know, very integral, like a, like a character in the movie, too. Yeah, I think it's uh, totally Jungian. I mean, I think it's just sort of the idea of our conscious and our subconscious being a part of a, a, a structure and a building. And it's 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 easy for us to kind of think about um, that as a metaphor for sort of the different spaces that we have in our mind. Um, and, I, and I actually, in some of the extras on the DVD that was released, I think it was like 2008 or something that the that DVD set was released, um, has some pretty interesting parts of how Kubrick went about sort of deciding uh, what rooms to shoot and how to sort of make it look um, in the sense that the, the the layout of the hotel almost mimics the maze or the labyrinth too. And so it's, you've got, not only do you have this sort of, you know, doubling of Jack's mind, uh, looking over the labyrinth and sort of controlling his wife and child in, inside the, the labyrinth or maze. Um, 
him looking at it and then seeing it from above. But then you also have sort of the, the maze that's within the hotel itself. And he selected rooms and kind of sort of like pieced together rooms and quilted together rooms from different areas of and different hotels. So it's, it's kind of beautiful to think about uh, the process of him going through that and, and sort of making that superstructure in that way. Oh yeah, and if I could kind of build on that a little bit, the the um, I, I guess the the idea that a hotel is um, I guess actually exists for your um, removal from from something like whether you're traveling or you just need to kind of um, get away from you know what I mean from from whatever is happening in your life. There's this kind of idea that that there's respite. You know, and and the way Kubert form well, actually the way the way that um, King forms the idea, Stephen King forms the idea of a hotel is that it's kind of a snare, that it's kind of lying in wait. You know, that that uh, that this this idea of removing oneself, you're actually interjecting yourself into something, um, you know, uh, darker and and. Uh, uh, more challenging than what you're removing yourself from. Definitely agree. And I think it's an archetype too of, um, of horror films in general. I'm not trying to, I mean, I, uh, love the shining and I'm not trying to, uh, say that we don't talk about that anymore, but it's, it's certainly one aspect of a number of horror films that a building sort of take on these. Yeah sort of supernatural aspects in, in incredibly cheesy ways, but then also in incredibly sophisticated ways too. Yeah. Because I guess the, the hotel has a certain kind of, um, if a hotel works properly, you feel kind of safe. You feel kind of, you know what I mean? Nurtured, taken care of. And, and so this idea that you are, um, actually entering, um, a living, thing that that actually has you in its in its uh sights is is uh, a beautiful twist on on what we i think kind of naturally want and need out of whatever this concept of an inn or a hotel or a room on the road or travel what we need out of that is completely um kind of duped definitely definitely not to mention that not to mention that Jack is Jack and his family are the caretakers of this place, uh, and it just totally reverses sort of the idea of them taking being able to sort of control the place and, hmm. and keep it up, you know. Oh, that that's a great that actually is a great point. Or or you know, really, uh, Jack and Wendy are kind of out of control in their own lives too. So it's it kind of um, marks a spot where. These are two people who have no control really over anything. And, and the hotel just becomes a, a place where it can spiral apart quicker. Yeah, definitely. Well, and one of the things that, you know, it, it brings up to me is just the idea that, you know, you partially one of the reasons that, I, that I, from what I understand, that people have a, a difficulty sleeping in a new place anyways is that it's a new environment, that when you're trying to get long, continuous sleep, that your your primitive side kind of kicks in because you're not in a familiar environment and mm. you're trying to be more aware for well any kind of random thing to kind of happen and in a way it's interesting because the the hotel in that sense really kind of 
never becomes settled. You know what I mean? Even after they've been there for, you know, like the first month and she's, you know, kind of casually pushing down this, this cart. I, I think that that's something that you, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you ever really feel comfortable. I mean, maybe, maybe they do a little bit when they kind of start getting, you know, more of those interior shots where they're in this little apartment. That's, that's where, you know, um, I guess some of the staff stays in, in the movie, but, um, you know, even when you kind of go out to these long unfolding hallways and that, um, it really becomes something that really stays unsettling, or at least for the people that, that are maybe watching it. And w one of the things that I thought was really interesting and, and just kind of researching this and kind of getting reinvested in this and, and bringing it up with you guys is the way that, you know, certain individuals talk about how there's really such a, a beautiful maze-like quality of all of the way that it's orchestrated and, and pieced together. And, and we talked a little bit about you know, the impossibility of, uh, how some of these things existed. So you could be watching like a, a slow tracking shot of, uh, all the characters kind of be given like a, a tour of this hotel and there are these giant walls of, uh, uh, windows, you know, and in actuality, you know, there's another wall behind it, or, you know, there's a, a, a space that's kind of closed off or, you know, you've got different rooms located or adjoined as Ben was kind of saying, almost woven together, um, which really, I think, add to that, that not getting a handle of this, this space, not getting a, a feeling of being comfortable. Definitely. Yeah, and I, th I think of we, I guess it's a good time to kind of interject this idea that the hotel for Jack is supposed to be this kind of nesting place for his work, right? It's supposed to be this place where he can finally in his life kind of um, get his creative side together. He seems to be a frustrated um, uh, writer who, you know what I mean, hasn't quite ever found his pace, never quite found his speed, um, and not very convincing in the film that the man has ever written anything. But, <laughs> but he wants to kind of, you know what I mean, he wants to kind of connect with that creative other um, within him. And of course the opposite happens. He actually gets controlled. He's not creating, but he's being cre created or recreated. But, um, I loved, um, one of the reasons why I'm kind of obsessed with the film is that, um, uh, that it addresses that idea of, of, uh, artist block and, and, and uses it as, as a kind of, uh, spirit form, uh, unto itself, you know, and, uh, anybody who's who's um, experienced, you know, real blockage in terms of creating uh, something that's kind of intellectual or or creative constipation uh, understands like how maddening, uh, not just frustrating, but utterly maddening uh, that it can be. And, and I think the film, you know, that's for me. That's the that's kind of the main kind of artery. Uh, that that the film works off of definitely and I, and I, even just to piggyback on what what Bill's saying too the parts where in some ways that are most disturbing to me before any violence takes place are when Jack's talking to um, Shelley Duvall I'm totally blanking on her character name right now but uh, uh, when when Jack's talking to Shelley Duvall about how when he's typing, she shouldn't come into the room or Shelly Duvall makes the comment of like, it's just a matter of getting back into the habit of it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's so easy from somebody else's perspective, you know, and, it, and, it, and 
in some ways I think, um, and I, you know, I, I feel bad if, uh, if, if Amy hears us, but in some ways I think Jack says all the things that, you know, I wanted to say at some point, uh, but just have the better sense not to and <laughs> control my anger a little bit, but he kind of exploits that a little bit. Um, which I think makes it, you know, completely disturbing because it's something that I think we can relate to, and and he just lets it go. He just kind of totally embraces well, that. That's a great point. It's like the filter is is dissipating, isn't it? That filter that we all kind of keep around us, and that is kind of one of the first signs of him kind of becoming unraveled is that he just start, starts to lose any any uh, uh, etiquette or you know, social form that he may have, he may have had, and he just starts kind of saying it like it is. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's really interesting and, and thinking about it like that, just because you think of it as just this pure, this pure ego driven or this pure id kind of, kind of character. And I think that you're spot on, Ben, in terms of talking about that, because, well, at least for me anyways, because I found that, you know, talking to other artists, you know, some people are very good about working with interruptions, but I can't stand it. You know, if I'm, if I'm trying to read something and someone's talking to me or ask me a question, that's a non sequitur, you know, it takes you X amount of time to get back into that thought. And, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe Jack has just had a really bad string of being interrupted all these years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and he's, you know, at times he's been a teacher. I think he teaches high school. Or there's at least some reference to it. I might be mixing up the the novel a little bit here with the the film, but there's at least some reference to him teaching high school in Vermont, rural Vermont, or something like that. And um, you know that there are those sort of real life implications of being an artist too, where so few of us actually make a living at what we do that we have to have other jobs. Um, so I think yeah, I think you're exa- we're all right on here. But he mentions uh, he mentions shoveling snow also, doesn't yes. he? I'll shovel snow for a living, which <laughs> kind of is this great kind of uh, forebearer to the storm that's coming. But yep. it also is about, like, being a failed artist. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, I mean, um, to be put into the... I don't know, just that, just that little thing where he's kind of anecdote, you know, he's dropping anecdotes in, in, the, in his interview and... Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a part-time teacher, and um, sadly, I can kind of feel his frustration when I've had a really uh, difficult day, yeah. <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, dealing with someone. Especially, you know, if you think about it too, because obviously, I'm guessing he's well, he's teaching English. Um, he's a he wants to be a writer, so the idea of also being around folks that don't have that same kind of drive or that same kind of passion to want to to do something about it is, um, you know, really interesting too. But obviously, he. Uh, well, he lacks the ability to control his emotions at some point too. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously enjoys the, uh, the, the Jack Daniels, uh, <laughs> a bit too much. Yeah. So, well, the, yeah. And, and that's a great point. And we could kind of move into another part of the film where there are, um, that we're really unclear as to, um, who people are and, and the fact that Jack, Nicholson plays Jack, right? And that the young boy who incidentally, I believe was from kind of more, uh, our area, Morton, yeah, right. Illinois. Yeah. Um, that's really terrific. Uh, Danny Lloyd play Danny plays Danny. So I think that was obviously purposeful for Kubrick to kind of, um, 
beyond the movie or a point, a point where the movie kind of takes on a body of itself where you're quite unsure as to where Jack Nicholson starts and where Jack Torrance, you know, starts and where they, that they, he really is trying to merge these people and their characters. And of course, uh, Danny Lloyd, Lloyd is the bartender. So I just r- realized that. Um, but the, but what set me on that Ben was, or I mean, um, uh, Dave is when you mentioned the Jack, because it was kind of interesting to me that of all the, you know, of, of all the stuff he could be drinking, he's drinking Jack as yeah. well. Definitely. Well, and also, I mean, maybe, maybe the idea of addiction is even something that I think about just because of, you know, we're, we're still talking a little bit about, um, to me anyways, that idea of, you know, being an artist in that sense. And I think that, that struggle is something that almost everyone feels, even if it's not just a, a a sense of block. I mean, it could just be like a lack of motivation or, you know, getting out of tune with what you want to do so much that, you know, something else becomes the focus. And again, it doesn't have to be necessarily alcohol. Um, some, some artists like to run a lot, for example. (laughs) Um, But I I don't know. I mean, not not this one. I I think I lean a little more, bit more towards Jack. Um, Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, you never know. Um, But um, but that upset that obsessive kind of compulsive kind of uh, uh, I don't know aspect of being an artist is something that I think is really hard to kind of escape. Well, if I could kind of kind of address that. I mean, being an artist really does depend on solitude to some degree, right? I mean, I, I think the idea of being alone with one's thoughts or, or creative impulses or visions is, is kind of part of the, of, of the concept of what an artist is. And it's one of the, the things that kind of, I guess, uh, entrance people and, and make them interested in what artists do. Um, but what the shining or, and actually a lot of horror films are very good at is exploiting that idea of, of the aloneness or like this, that there's this terror in solitude, you know, and for me that really, uh, you know, that really resonates within like a studio practice, you know, and again, uh, the, the whole movie, um, kind of keeps reverberating a lot of, um, creative impulses as far as, as far as my own personal experience goes. Definitely. I agree. And I, I, I'm not trying to tease you too much, Dave. I, I agree what you're saying about the sort of a tendency for an addictive personality. And I would even say too, it's a need for sort of a steady schedule and sort of stable time frame so that you can, I mean, I feel like whenever I've struggled to make work, it's, it's been because my schedule is unpredictable, you know, and when I, when I have my schedule figured out, then I can always sort of make time to be in the studio. Um, but then just in the same way with what we're talking about, I, I don't think that that always means that you make good work or you make work at all because you're kind of in this interior space. That's, that never seems to sort of, you know, go with the schedule that you have available to you. Sure. Well, and obviously with Danny and his friend um, that lives in his mouth, you know, interjecting all the time, I'm sure Jack can't get shit done, you know. <laughs> um, 
One, <laughs> one of the things that I that I wanted to talk a little bit about too, um, that I really like visually is uh, just the way that the the camera kind of sets up certain shots, and and you know you talked a little bit about uh, maybe tracking shots, Ben, or, or um, point of view shots, or the steady cam thing. Um, but I mean, I, I think first of all, I think the architecture and the the smallness of characters sometimes is really emphasized very well. And I think that um, just kind of randomly thinking about this is um, where Jack is sitting um, at the bar. Um, there's a shot that I remember where you can really see almost like a. It really emphasizes to me like the perspective of where he's where he's at, yeah. and there's a lot of shots that do that. Um, and I think I don't know maybe this could bring up a, another another. Another thing for me, I mean, I think the, the creepiest uh, thing that happens for me in the movie, and maybe this could be for a lot of folks, is when Danny, you know, stumbles upon the, the murdered twin ghosts. And um, one of the things that I really love about that shot, and kind of going back to this idea of sound earlier, is the way that, you know, as you're kind of, um, you know, following Danny all around this hotel, like there's times where, again, like the, the sound is like continually like him riding over you know, like the wood floor and then hitting carpet yeah. and then the, 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 the sound changes. But one of the things that I noticed is right before um, the scene where, where, where Danny turns the corner and, and stumbles upon these, these murdered twins or these little girls that are creepy as hell, um, there's, um, he gets really small in the frame. He gets smaller and smaller. And then it kind of turns this corner and it just opens up and expands. And so that's something I thought was really, really interesting in terms of the way that that's set up. Yeah, there's a couple times that that happens, too. And one of the creepiest parts to me is, um, I think, uh, in general, I think conflict in the film is what disturbs me the most. And so um, there's, a, there's a point where uh, Wendy hears Jack having a bad dream when he's, t- when he's working. And so she runs to wake him up and... Jack is telling her about his bad dream where he murders murders them and uh you follow I mean you you're involved in that to a certain extent but then it kind of shifts to that you're back behind Danny in the shadows and he's just been attacked by the the by room 237 um and he's walking into the scene with them talking at that big table that Jack's working at and um and uh Wendy is is telling Danny that just to go to his room and and Danny's like slowly walking sucking his thumb and you can't see that anything's wrong but it's that it's that weird mixture of of being close to Danny and sort of being his shadow looking upon what's happening in the room and then it kind of opens up to that huge lobby space where where Jack's working and that, and that to me is just one of the most disturbing parts of the film yeah the the uh the lounge or the whatever the lobby um, that he, that he's typing in um, it is certainly like the, it seems to be like the headquarters of the, of the movie the headquarters of him or the hotel or all of those things. But the, but the, the sheer, uh, I guess the openness, you know, that kind of cavernness uh, that, that it, creates is is very similar to i think as dave is pointing out the the intro uh where the car is kind of moving around through these uh mountainscapes these canyons and and for me it's just yeah it definitely definitely gets down into the core 
Well, and I, I can't remember which one of you brought up the idea of, or at least I, I was talking about the idea of villains, and one of you brought up the idea that, you know, Jack is not a villain. And um, it's an interesting idea because even just kind of continuing what we were just talking about in, in that part of the movie where where Danny comes in there, um, you know, there's almost a, a, a time where Jack is then able to kind of reach out and, and kind of say that, you know, he's not doing very well mentally. And um, it's a, it's kind of a time for them to almost readjust and, and to come kind of come out of, of this fog and acknowledge that he's in this weird mental place. And then she just assumes um, because he's hit him before and, and when, when she sees the handprint, just assumes that it's him and doesn't come out until later, you know, that that it wasn't him. But, you know, there's there's no way that it's changing in his mind now that she's accused him of this. And, um, yeah, again, he's at this block. So he, <laughs> he winds up reacting, overreacting a little bit, I guess. No, in <laughs> some ways he's not the villain at all. He's, you know, he as he clearly states in the film, you know, he's signed a contract. He is, he's fulfilling his obligations. So he is the... I, I mean, we haven't even gone into, and we don't need to, but uh, that there are a lot of kind of connections to, um, you know, colonialism and 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 um, kind of the European Native American relationships, and and I think that's very real within the film. But what I like about what we're talking about is that this kind of idea of fulfilling your obligations and doing your work and doing it well and. And the obsession over it, whether you're doing it or not, seems to be in a, a very American kind of of trait. You know that this is this is what's expected of me, and I'm going to I'm going to see this through. So so in that way, in, in Jack's mind, I'm sure he's you know he's not a villain at all. He's just trying to you know do the right thing. Yeah, and I think it's one of the geniuses of the of the film. Uh, to me, is is that it's very ambiguous in terms of, um, you know, whether it's, it's the hotel and sort of this paranormal or, or supernatural entity that's, um, that's sort of converting Jack to the villain or if, uh, the situation is, or, I mean, I just think it's, it's, it's very seldom in horror films that, that we don't have everything explained for us. So, the Shining is, a, is is sort of a beautiful ambiguity of of who is to blame, mm-hmm. what's happening. If it's like this enduring evil that's been there since the you know the Grady the caretaker, mm-hmm. his family, or or whether it's just sort of the alcoholism that that Jack suffers. I mean, I I th- I agree with Bill completely. I think that Jack is 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 not a, obviously a villain in the film. I mean, he obviously. Uh, has some issues that he's working through, but but I don't think it's easy to call him a villain in the traditional sense. Well, and I think that's one of the things that really any, to me, any successful, a movie that I keep coming back to anyways when I say successful, a movie that when I watch it over and over again, or it could be again, it's something that I watch next year that I pick up something differently, is that that idea that you're talking about leaving leaving some ambiguity, not spelling everything out, which is something that I think you know, a lot of horror movies, um, as that genre develops. And again, I'm not a, an expertise, um, in this, in this area, but, um, you know, it seems like a lot of times they really like to spell things out. Um, and it's really when, when you kind of get that ambiguity and you can't really put your finger on it or, or something that, 
again, as you're kind of rewatching it or, or seeing something new about it each time, it really kind of adds to that. Um, and, the, and those different types of layers. Cause like I said before, for me, I just, I wonder if this is something then that's kind of presumed to be a cycle that's going to kind of keep continuing that, you know, this, this kind of thing is going to happen again in another 30 years. Um, so I'm curious, do you think that there's any, and this is kind of random, but any kind of relationship to that idea of it being circular? Um, and again, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's even a sense of like reincarnation or the way that Bill's kind of bring up this idea. And obviously the, the hotel's built on an Indian burial ground, which is, uh, you know, happened throughout other other genres and I'm thinking or other genres, other movies like uh, poltergeist, for example. Um, but, um, that's something that's interested to me, but I mean, do you, th- do you think there's a, a cyclical nature in that? Is there a specific idea behind that? Or is it meant to be ambiguous amb- ambiguously kind of just left out there for the viewer to decide? Um, I, you know, this is a question more than it is a statement, but is it ever explicitly stated in the film that it's an Indian burial ground? I mean, I think that's like, Stephen King's bag of tricks. So most <laughs> Stephen King is involved in, in a very good way. I mean, I'm not uh, being critical of him, but you know, there's Pet Cemetery. There's there's infinite numbers of movies that involve a, a Indian burial ground. So I'm I, I'm trying to sort of rack my brain if there's like a yeah yeah. I think he does actually like, state okay. yeah the uh, uh, omen. The, uh, the the guy who interviews him, I think, while he's giving him a tour, um, mentions that. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, look, the you know, I keep coming back to the same thing because I really think the the movie revolves around the the work, the writing at the end, where you see all work and no play <laughs> makes Jack a dull boy, but the repetition that. That that you know, of course, the maniacal repetition um, indicates that he's still trying to work, but it also indicates, I think, that yeah, that in my opinion, it does go on. Um, that you know that there is the cycle to the hotel, and that's what keeps everything right with it. Um, there are two Grady's. There's there's the first one that has been communicated to Jack in the interview, and he's Charles Grady. And the 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 uh, waiter in the in the um, restaurant is Delbert Grady. Yeah. So you know, in a sense, one could say that Jack has always been the Grady's and the Torrances and the ones who have come before that, and the ones who will come after that. Um, but uh, similarly, Danny is wrapped up in this too. So, in in one way of looking at it, Danny and Jack are the same person. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's if you if you wanted to extrapolate from like the Del- the Grady thing, that that Danny is the one who breaks the cycle, so to speak, and and um, and kind of kills the father right at the end, which yeah. is really great too. But but yeah, I, my opinion is that it um, it it has to go forever. It's, it's as forever as you know whatever does you know the earth turning. You know, it's it's the beautiful kind of life to that hotel. Well, and I think if if maybe Danny had a little bit more time to hang out with um, the chef, um, you know, especially back in Florida where he has really great art on the walls, uh, big Afro, uh, Afro popping naked chicks. Um, but but I think in that sense, it's interesting to me because I because I, 
I don't know, in, in, in a way then you, you, you probably think then, or if you think about that relationship and you've talked about like this dual relationships throughout the movie, is that you got to figure then that uh, when Jack was a little boy, um, this was something that was going on with him. And you wonder at the same time, because um, he talks a little bit about it being mm. familiar, um, you got to wonder if those those images are something that kind of keeps, um, uh, kind of keep going through all their heads, you know. Do you, do, and and it makes me think and wonder then, you know, when you visually see someone taking an axe to the chest, um, if you're going to come out all right on on top of that later on, or if you're going to be a little crazy <laughs> yourself, you know. <laughs> And knowing contemporary times, they're going to have a, a remake for it, you know. There is a, they're already had the Sci-Fi Channel did a remake of it, um, and it's 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 more accurate to the book, um, but it, it loses a number of of, of good qualities. Uh, is is probably putting it nicely, and the, and the, and it doesn't help that one of the actors from the old TV show Wings, <laughs> right, parts. right. And the kid is uh, a kid that we all know, but uh, not not what I would call like uh, quite quite as good as Danny Torrance did. Wasn't that Stephen King's movie? Uh, didn't Stephen King produce that, or did I, think I hear that? Well, yeah, yeah. And there's all all these like interesting, funny things about like Stephen King hating the film, but now he's sort of like come around to it, and hmm. um, and I think that there. Are, I mean, they're separate entities. I think I mean, one of the best things that can be, one of the best compliments that can be given to a film that's based on a book is that it's like apples and oranges, you know, that they're, they're two distinct and separate entities. And I think Kubrick did a great job of that. So For sure. Right. So we're wrapping up, and we've had a, a pretty interesting conversation so far about The Shining, but... You know, we wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of the what, what's proposed at the end. Um, you know, we see, um, you know, these slow tracking shots kind of moving forward to this this uh, wall of pictures. And, you know, it slowly kind of closes in. And we see that, um, well, Jack looks an awful lot like, uh, uh, you know, Grady, or at least what we assume is Grady in, in the past. And, you know, we've been talking a little bit about this idea of uh, the cyclical nature of these characters or... Um, you know, maybe even relating to that how how I don't know. Depending on what you believe in terms of an afterlife, uh, you know, we might all be repeating things in in our lives or um, in lives in, in general. But what are some of your thoughts about uh, what what's that intended? Does it leave it open? Um, does it close it up in a nice bow for you guys? Um, what do you guys think? Uh, I, th- I think it's great. Um, I, I, I one of my sort of interest in it, and I'm not trying to divert from the original question, but is the um, sort of the end photograph as an answer to what happens is fantastic because it, it sort of asks, creates more questions than it answers um, as opposed to sort of what, what had been sort of the archetype in horror films. And this goes all the way back to early horror films. There's, there's a, there's an answer for the way that things are the way they are, or there's, you know, there's the uh, radioactive bug that bit something to create the monster or um, an Indian burial ground that is the only answer to why things are the way they are. And that's that's what haunts the space that's there. But I think Kubrick uh, sort of created more questions than he answered when he did that. And I, and I also think it's interesting in terms of uh, the ominousness of the film 
because you kind of have a build-up to the storm that's happening through most of the film. But then the end end parts of it sort of are make more references to a party. So there's a time when Jack Torrance says, like, I'll, I'll obviously, you know, dress up for the, the goose and fish soiree or whatever he says. <laughs> And then the last photograph, not only is it weird that he's in this photograph, but it's a party. You know, it's a big, like, um, a big party in the 1920s in the in the majestic ballroom. So it's kind of this interesting resolution to the, the ominousness that you feel feel all the way through the film. Yeah, and, and also uh, the, the concept of the party... Uh, echoes the uh, initial conversation when they're driving to the interview about the Donner party. Oh yeah. <laughs> which so right. again, it, it, there's like this, you know, it, it certainly keeps spiraling on and on and on, but there's kind of this idea of finality that never really happens. Um, and, and for me, the, the genius of, of that, which I completely agree with Ben, everything he said is absolutely spot on is that um, th- that Kubrick creates another duality in the film, which is two endings. So you have the ending of, you know, the, the whatever, the protagonist, villain, slash, you know, main character is dead, um, and, and so everybody is safe, but then he creates yet another ending, um, which, which equally is, is profound and, and open-ended and, and beautifully ambiguous. Um, but the, I think the best part of the photograph is it seems that, um, and I was looking at this last night preparing for a little conversation, but it appears he has like a piece of paper in his hand, um, in the photograph as if he's holding the answer to something, uh, which I thought just, there's just no end to the, to the, the detail, uh, the, and the kind of vision that Kubrick had with this one, I'll tell you. Well, and it, it kind of brings up a really random thought to me. Um, but one of the things that I always think is interesting to ask is also, what do you guys think of in terms of what what happens next in the in the characters uh, of uh, what is it, Wendy and Danny? Because um, hmm. well, you know, you you always think about movies that you see. Um, you know, you've got all these different. You know, the 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 hero um, or the protagonist has to go through some kind of ordeal, yeah. comes out clean on the end, but. You know what happens next? Well, apparently there was there were scenes shot of um, of the post, um, you know, the trauma. You know, like there's this hospital scene in which Halloran and Danny and Wendy are together. You know, just kind of commiserating and saying, or no, like it couldn't be Halloran because Halloran's dead, right? So. Yeah. Pretty yeah, sure. Supposedly, there's there are some shots that that do what you're suggesting, Dave. That kind of create this kind of wow, everything's great now, and wow, what a downer that would have been. You <laughs> <laughs> could put that in. Well, I, you know, you just end it with Danny sitting at a typewriter. You know, all work and no play makes Danny right. a dull boy. Um, but obviously, that would have been a little weak. I think. You know, I think that that in that sense, kind of getting it back to what you were talking about, it brought up as the in the idea of the photograph, really kind of does make it a, a a really strong ending. You know, because it, as Ben was pointing out earlier, really kind of leaves it still ambiguous. It doesn't tie everything up really cleanly, um, and obviously, uh, I think that's one of the things that's really nice about a movie like this is that it's self-contained. It's not, 
it's not um, a movie that's wrought with how can we, you know, reanimate Jack and turn mm-hmm. this into a franchise. You know, it's something that that kind of ends the story, but you know, is something that you can keep revisiting, and, and, and in a way, makes this a really interesting film as opposed to, you know, the way that even a movie that I love like Halloween. Um, kind of weaves into this other story that just goes on and on and on. Or, you know, when when uh, Jason Voorhees winds up in outer space fighting an alien <laughs> or something. <laughs> so, And just to add to this uh, and maybe counteract your Jason Voorhees in space comment, Dave, um, the, uh, I've, I've never been a, a, a credit watcher. I can't stand watching the credits, but I did actually watch the entirety of the film and watch to the very end of the credits. And so in the last 10 seconds uh, on the DVD anyway, um, is applause. I mean, it's the creepiest shit in the world, man. I don't wow. say that as a podcast, but it, but it has that sort of like 1920s, uh, flapper music that goes through the rolling of the credits and it's kind of sweet music, <laughs> but at the very end there's applause and it, and it is just, I mean, it's, it's amazing that Kubrick thought about that. I mean, it's, it's, wow the complete package all the way through and, and sort of reinforces that party and that gathering hmm. uh, you're left to imply too, that it's the, it's the photograph, you know, it's the sort of soundtrack for the photograph in some ways. So, and I think, you know, again, that's a, it's a great note to end on, uh, in applause. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, again, I, I really appreciate you guys, uh, taking the time and it was great having you on Ben and Bill. So thanks for all of your, uh, interesting thoughts on the shining thanks dave thanks dave and ben happy halloween all right i'd like to take a minute just to thank ben and bill for joining us today of course if you'd like to find out more information about ben's work you can visit benjamingardner.com where he's recently updated all of it because he's had a number of solo shows that have gone on so it's very exciting stuff. I hope you go check that out. And once again, Bill Conger is at BillConger.com. Got a ton of great work up there. Of course, if you'd like to see any of my paintings, you can visit DavidLinaway.com. And I'd just like to take a moment to invite you to an exhibition that's opening up November 12th from 1.30 to 3.30 at the Moberly Area Community College. It's a solo exhibition entitled Reconstructed, and that runs from November 12th to December 12th. So if you happen to live in Moberly, Missouri, or somewhere close by, perhaps Columbia, Missouri, you can come and check that out. And I'll also note that Bill has a couple of shows going on right this weekend. Bill Conger and Adam Farkas this weekend. Radioactive Pal at Box 13 in Houston opens this Saturday, November 3rd through December 15th. So please go ahead and check that out. And Bill also has a show with Colin Nesbitt opening November 10th at Helmuth Projects in San Diego. So please go and check that out. And once again, there will be links at the Studio Break blog and podcast site so please go to studiobreak.com become a subscriber there once again you can follow the links and subscribe to studio break in itunes we do have a great variety so again they're very convenient and easy to drop onto your phone or your portable device and listen to while you're taking that commute or while you're on the train in the morning etc we'd also really appreciate if you left us some feedback again it just helps us gain a little bit more visibility to anyone that's looking into visual arts and uh, podcasts so please go ahead and do that we'd really appreciate it 
As always, our free music was found at freemusicarchive.org, where they've got thousands of songs, tons of albums that you can check out, including this song, which was found in a Halloween mix that they have up by Sinklog, The Cemetery. Once again, we'd really love it if you followed us on Twitter at Studio Break on Twitter, or check us out on Facebook. The Studio Break page there provides a number of updates and previews for upcoming artists and shows. And once again, we'd love any kind of comments or feedback that you have. And we'll talk to you real soon. Happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs>